You're listening to Group, a podcast about mental illness and mental health. This is the show for the warriors. I created this whole new mental attitude. It's called a nervous breakdown. The depressives. If I keep my body moving and my mind occupied at all times, I will avoid falling into a bottomless pit of despair. And the folks having difficulty keeping it together. I want to rip off my skin and throw it in the trash. Our goal is to tell your stories, to share advice, and to give you an audio hug through your earbuds. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, your resident anxious person, and I'm here today with group friendopist, licensed clinical social worker, Catherine Drury. Hi there. Uh, how are you doing, Catherine? I'm a little warm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's suddenly summer. Yeah, it's suddenly disgusting in New York. <laughs> The subways are disgusting. Going outside is disgusting. But I will take it. I will take it 100% over winter. Yes, that's true. Um, this is our final episode in the little series that we're doing on grief. So how, how are you How are you doing with, with this talk about death and bereavement? Um, it's heavy, but it's nice to have a space to share some stories and show how different people grieve and how it affects different people's mental health in different ways. Um, so again, this is the final episode in our series on grief. Uh, if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, there's one that was released April 1st with comedian Carrie Ad Lloyd, who's the host of Griefcast, which I really recommend you check out. But also, uh, to get some context for this episode, go listen to the May 1st episode. We touched on a lot of different aspects of grief uh, with Professor George Bonanno, who's been studying bereavement for almost 30 years now. We talked about the five stages of grief and explained why it's it's dangerous to assume that everyone needs to move through these stages in order to be okay. Uh, everyone grieves differently, and so we, we don't necessarily need to follow a specific model or formula. We also spoke about the two major patterns for grieving, resilience and recovery, um, but we didn't really get into the third form of grief, which is chronic or prolonged grief. Right. And this form of grief is actually listed as a disorder in the DSM as persistent complex bereavement disorder. Uh, People with this diagnosis have very severe reactions to grief that persist for at least 12 months and really interfere with that person's capacity to function. So today we're going to be talking about prolonged grief. We'll check in again with Professor George Bonanno and hear about how this pattern of grief is related to things like uh, PTSD and depression. Grief is kind of like depression, but it's profoundly different in many ways. We'll also hear from author and professor John W. Evans about his experience grieving his wife after she died in a particularly traumatic way. Of course, what I was going through was a genuine grief, but at the time, I didn't think it felt that way. I was deeply skeptical that the reaction I was having was wrong. We'll also save some time at the end to talk about how to be supportive to friends and family members who are grieving. Uh, I know, you know, we talked about in the last episode how we don't really have like a good roadmap for grief. Mm. We'll suggest some ways to navigate those situations. And uh, we'll play a story I really love from journalist Carmel Delshad about her experience grieving her father and the things that were really helpful for her at that point in time and some of the things that she wished maybe had been different or or people had done differently when they were trying to um, be supportive for her. I felt like a lot of people, particularly my younger friends, you know, my age group, didn't know how to deal with death at all. So stay with us and... Let's be kind to each other through some hard stuff. Okay, so obviously it's normal to feel sad when someone dies. But, you know, we're talking about prolonged grief today. As Catherine was saying, grief over an extended period of time that really interrupts and affects your life. So I asked Professor Bonanno, like, at what point does sadness become problematic? At what point does grief become a disorder? Well, intense sadness makes it a little bit hard to do other things. We go in and out of those states. So even it may feel like we're sad for two weeks, it may feel like we've been sad day and night for two weeks. Typically, we're not. We'll be sad for a period and our mind will drift off and then we'll be sad again. Um, But after, you know, even a few days or a week or two, we, we kind of have a lot of other things we need to take care of. And, mo- and, and many people do. Most people do. Um, when we become, in a way, overwhelmed by this state, and we're in this state of sadness a lot for long periods of time, we, we then begin to 
run everything in our mind a little bit too much, and that's when we call that rumination. We begin to to run in circles in a way in our mind because we're turned inward and we're not paying attention to the world around us. Then we begin to to become, in a way, depressed, and that's when grief reactions start to get a little more pronounced. And after a few months of that, I mean, it's hard to say with any precision, you know, because everybody's different and everybody has different relationships. Even after a few weeks, it it begins to get more difficult to be in that state a lot, and and it, it begins to take its toll. And after several months or longer, then people start to really have a harder time functioning. They might not no longer be sleeping well, they may be starting to um, have a compromised immune functioning because they're having these intense reactions and they're feeling a lot of stress or might have, begin to have difficult concentrating. And then they're having a harder time functioning in the world. And that's when it start, things start to go downhill a little bit. So what are the differences between clinical depression and prolonged grief or prolonged grief disorder? Well, this is something that, that the, the field, this is mostly a psychiatric question, is still trying to work out. But grief is kind of like depression, but it's profoundly different in many ways. A clinical depression is a kind of a global condition. There's a just sense that nothing is good. There's a, a feeling of things are not worth anything. I don't feel, I can't enjoy things. But it's global. It's, a, it's generic in a sense. And there's often a sense of negative feelings about oneself, the world is not pleasurable in any way, you know, and there's difficulty sleeping and other issues like that. But grief is much more about the person that was lost, and it's dominated by a couple key things. One is yearning, this, this constant kind of wanting that person. And there's a part of the brain, the reward system makes us want things, and the reward system seems to be in high gear during bereavement, and so we, we, it ends up into this state of yearning. And there's a lot of distress associated with it. So it's a kind of a much more preoccupation about the, the person that was lost and repetitive focusing on the person that was lost and wanting that person. I just want to be with this person again. And it, at some point, it becomes almost painful. And that's a very difficult state to be in. Um, so do we know if individuals who have histories... Uh, of clinical depression are potentially more likely to experience prolonged grief? Um, Let's see. That's a great question. I don't know how good the research is on, but I would say yes, probably. Yes, because um, typically you have already a kind of a a tendency towards um, these states, and I think, yeah, it makes people more vulnerable. Yeah. So if you have like a tendency to ruminate or a history of yeah, yeah, rumination, then maybe this could be an, an event that would, would cause you to, yeah. to ruminate for a long period of time. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I try to avoid making any kind of blanket statements like that, but, the, but probabilistically, yes, you're more likely to struggle if you've struggled before with similar things, yeah. Um, so for, you know, potentially traumatic events, when you, when you witness someone that you love, die in maybe a violent way. Um, is, is there more of a likelihood for prolonged grief in that situation? Um, there is more of a likelihood. It's not absolute by any means, though. So what, what we've seen is in the research is that if the, if the loved one died in a way that was essentially a traumatic event for them or for the, the survivor, meaning that they died a violent death, um, typically violence is what, what the, the main um, source of traumatic uh, losses. If, if, if the loved one died through a traumatic means, a violent death or a very graphic way, it increases the likelihood that the person will grieve more, have a more difficult grief. They could have some trauma symptoms, PTSD symptoms, which are a different kind of experience from grieving. A number of years ago, research was done. I did some research on this. Some other colleagues were. We looked at depression and PTSD, and it, traumatic losses increased both of those, a death by a traumatic means. So it, it does make it, I think it's more difficult. It doesn't mean that if a loved one has died in a violent way or graphic way that, 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 a, that the bereaved person is, is doomed to suffer longer. It just increases the likelihood. It's just more of a loss to deal with. I, th- I thought it was uh, interesting. So um, in your book, you were writing about how, you know, in situations where like of mass violence where, where people, a lot of people died in a potentially traumatic way, like after 9-11, for example, when individuals are given a one-time 
PTSD counseling session, that could it could potentially affect their long-term uh, ability to recover, which I found really fascinating. Can you sort of ex- sure. explain the yeah. connection there? Yeah, so this approach went by different names, uh, critical incident stress debriefing, stress debriefing, et cetera. And sometimes grief counseling was tossed in as a, as a word for this same experience. And the idea was that maybe anybody exposed to a potentially traumatic event could benefit from just a debriefing session. And it led to this idea when there's a, a, a mass tragedy, it would save a lot of time and help a lot of people by just giving everybody sometimes a single session of this debriefing. And people who were involved in these things said they liked it, said it helped them. Practitioners were sure it helped. But as research began to accrue, it became clear that it mostly didn't help and sometimes made people worse. And in fact, that the, the evidence is so clear then, it's, it's not possible to research that anymore because ethics boards won't allow it to, to, to have people go through procedures that are now been shown to make people worse. And the idea seems to be, no one exactly knows why it made people worse, but the idea seems to be in the first days after the first, say, 48 hours after being in a car accident or, say, a terrorist attack, witnessing a violent death, that we're in a state where we're replaying the event in our minds a lot. We're having what is a very, very normal reaction. A normal reaction is to replay the event in our minds. We are in a state of high arousal and emergency response. And our minds are trying to process this horrible thing, which is a real way, to, is a learning experience. It's how we learn about things that happen to us. When somebody's in that state, having a mental health professional show up and say, hi, I'm a mental health professional. Let me tell you what a trauma is. Here are the stages of trauma. And here's what you went through. And I think that, I don't know how to say this other than in colloquial term, I think it just freaks people out. It convinces people that they've been through a, a traumatic event and they're having a trauma reaction instead of people kind of naturally just going through what they went through and gradually accepting, okay, this really horrible thing happened. I'm okay, which is what most people do. And instead they have this sense of, I was through a tra- I went through a traumatic event and I'm, I'm having trauma reactions, which is scary. It's very scary for people. And those scary reactions tended to have lasting consequences for people. Whatever natural reactions they have can be changed in their minds and maybe I'm ha- they're into some sort of pathological reaction. So, like, how does that translate to if you or a loved one has, has seen someone die a, a, in a, a potentially um, traumatic way, should, should you encourage that loved one to go to someone who specializes in PTSD? Like if, if you know, in 40, the 48 hours after they experience the event, if they go see someone and they, they get freaked out, like what should yeah. the steps be at that point? Well, there is no hard and fast rule, but generally for, for something like a trauma reaction, the general rule of thumb is about a month. Give people about a month to, to let it play out. There, there was a real attempt to try to understand early reactions to trauma and it turns out intense, intense reactions within the first month didn't actually predict PTSD very well because people are very different in how well they take things. And so um, I think see, seeing mental health providers within, a, within the first month is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. As people will be okay, people can get by for a month, and I think that people need to really just, you know, let it run its course. And after, you know, after a month, typically you can start thinking, I'm, you know, I'm not getting over this or, you know, but I, I think anytime within the first month, it's just too soon to, to seek help. So uh, what are what are the different uh, just treatment options for people who have, you know, prolonged grief? We hadn't made much progress in treating complicated grief or prolonged grief until recently. Sometimes even the simpler things work, like something... Um, Behavioral activation, which is really just getting people to get out and do things every day. And that can really help because people stop doing that, stop going out, stop going to store. And just getting people to do things again helps them, it helps immensely. It, in the trauma world, exposure therapy is very efficacious, but it's very difficult for people to go through. They have to kind of face the, whatever the traumatic event was in great detail and, you know, tell the therapist from beginning to end in great detail what happened, record it, listen to it, etc. And people have a very hard time doing that, but it's really helpful. It's painful, but it's helpful. It turned out when 
people began to study it, that this exposure part seems to be really necessary because people are really struggling with, with a loss. People who can't seem to get over a loss tend to not have a very clear idea of what actually happened. And they often develop very distorted beliefs about what actually happened. It is somehow their fault, or somehow the person died for this reason or that reason. And when they actually sit down and they tell the story from beginning to end in detail, it's sometimes it's the first time they actually really told themselves what really happened. And they sometimes then realize, it's not my fault. That's not the reason they died. And so it really helps people understand and kind of get a more realistic sense of the loss and sort of in a way break out of these sort of thought patterns that they've had that were tormenting themselves. So these treatments are designed to get at those th- that kind of nexus now, and they're, they're, they're quite efficacious. I want to share the story of someone who was going through grief after witnessing the traumatic death of a loved one. Um, I spoke with author and professor John Evans about his experience mourning his wife Katie after she was killed by a bear on a hiking trip. If this story isn't for you, that's totally fine. Uh, You can skip forward to the end uh, and listen to Carmel's story, or you can wait until June when we'll put out something much later. But before we get to the interview, I I just want to play a clip of John reading an excerpt from his memoir called Young Widower, where he illustrates the last moments of his wife Katie's life. At the time, it was 2007. John was 29 and Katie was 30, and they were living in Romania together. Um, They had taken a trip to a nearby mountain and they were hiking up to a hostel. Katie was hiking behind John with her friend Sarah and with a local Romanian John had already arrived at the hostel, and at this point he's feeling anxious uh, and worried about Katie and wondering why it's taking her so long to get to the hostel. Katie, Sarah, and the Romanian had encountered a grizzly bear, and they were trying to escape it. So this is John W. Evans reading from his award-winning book, Young Widower. The bear continued forward, slow and deliberate. Katie said they should all play dead, so they rolled onto the ground and covered their heads. At what strange angles to the ground they must have held their bodies. How terrifying, that waiting in the dark for the attack to either begin or not begin, and thinking, still this might pass. They might survive all of this, if only they remained still and waited. The bear pawed first at Sarah and the Romanian, not Katie. It swiped at their heads, tore at their scalps and legs, pushed into their backs. They were injured and afraid, but not yet hysterical. They continued to play dead. They submitted to the bear, but the bear did not choose them. Who was the first person to think of it? That one or two of them might survive if only one of them didn't. That they did not have to outrun the bear, or defeat it, or discourage it. Perhaps they thought of it like this. The odds are on someone's side. Individually, whoever ran first had only to get clear and back to the trail. If the bear did not follow, then it would be the other person who abandoned the victim. They had only to surrender the idea of the group, and wasn't the bear doing that already, focusing now on Katie and leaving them be? How long should they wait like that? Didn't each minute they stayed only increase the odds that the bear might turn back to them and take a second look? Could they turn away from this last part of themselves? They did not have to want to do it, It could appear suddenly in their minds, a surprise, a well-reasoned and complete idea for which they had no agency, fortune, distraction, survival. Who worked out the math, the timing, the imperfect logistics, until running became the only real option? Who lay there waiting to try it? How long did they wait? It seemed an eternity, this waiting, but it had only been a few minutes since they stood at the kilometer marker with the rest of the group taking pictures and hadn't the other group abandoned them there. The victims were here, while the survivors had gone ahead to the hostel to sleep for the night. Did anyone notice their absence? Hadn't they missed their window to catch up? They must have heard a voice yelling Katie's name, then their own. Perhaps they recognized it. Should they respond to it? Did their voices risk unsettling the balance of disinterest and safety? Still, they were all alive. The bear seemed now more menacing than curious. It seemed to wait for something. And then Katie's voice yelled back, sudden and louder than the wind on the ridge, 
clear and insistent. Don't come closer. Find a gun. Get back quickly. Katie had spoken. She had broken the silence. The voice was gone now. The window of time was closing. Did any of them really believe that help would arrive in time? Now there was no longer obligation, only panic and its acceleration, and Katie, unable to move, laying stock still on the ground, following the rules, still played dead and waited. She whispered to the others to leave, to go get help and come back. She watched them leave, and in the silence that followed, she understood she was now brave and selfless, heroic and elect, and that these were judgments that could come only after the fact of her death, in the witness of those who survived to speak it. I must tell this last part, even if I do not know it. I have to think through how she made this decision and what happened afterward, even if I cannot know. Katie lay on the ground waiting. She made her body into a ball so that the bear could only strike obliquely. She covered her face and waited. She would not have felt optimistic or hopeful for herself, and she would not have felt good for the people she had rescued. Her mind did not work this way. There would be no pleasure, only a sense of obligation flashing once across her mind to say she had done the right thing by the people she loved. She had saved them. Or better still, she had given them the chance to save themselves. However, they cowered from it and tried to refuse it, or say it was a matter of circumstance and timing and luck, always just below their complicated reasoning, their absence of guilt and refusal to explain, was the irrefutable fact of their witness. Katie had given them permission to leave. She asked them to do it. In that moment, perhaps, Katie imagined her own death without consequence. She waited for it, through the fear, the pain, and then the absence of pain, long enough for her friends to get clear. Patient for what she knew now was the end. She heard the voices closer than further away, then no voices, no sound, no presence, no sense of self. Only the object of her body waiting to be received, her mind becoming one part of that body, calling for help until it could not make words, only sounds, locating itself in the surrounding darkness. Then the mind, separate of that darkness. It was roughly 20 minutes from the moment the two hikers left the hill until Katie's death. But in this last moment, she was not present. She could not be. The mind cannot organize so much pain and fear and suffering and also withstand it. This is the last great lie of the surviving witness, and from everything I could find to read about trauma after Katie's death, it is also true. Katie's pupils opened to receive the last light coming across the ridge. She saw nothing. Not the stars or the grass or the bear or the bear leaving and everyone arriving slowly and too late to claim her. So uh, you, you spoke with a, a psychiatrist in Romania pretty immediately after this happened, right? Um, yeah. Do you remember yeah. what that was like, and, and do you think it was helpful at all? Oh, my gosh. It, yes, 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 yes. It took like three hours to get down the mountain. It took another two hours to get to Bucharest. And we got to the, the embassy, the embassy nurse's house, the nurse of the embassy, American embassy, and she, the United States embassy, and she looked at Sarah's wounds and she looked, you know, looked at me and we took, we were able to take showers. And I think that in the embassy nurse's house, Sarah and I both had different sort of versions of, of a, you know, a traumatic response. And I only say that because the embassy nurse sort of said, well, I'm going to get, I'm going to get you in to talk to, you know, I'm going to get you in to talk to the embassy psychiatrist uh, but he flew into Bucharest, I want to say, like, the next day, maybe the day after that, mm-hmm. and met with me. And I remember, like, so vividly, this kind of, you know, kindly, bearded, late middle-aged man. We sort of started talking, and I kept saying things like, well, I'm, I'm going to be okay. I just have to get Katie home. I'm going to be okay. I just have to get Katie home. I got to get Katie home to her family. I have to get Katie. You know, I sort of had this cadence to how I was talking. And, and you know, at one point he, he, he sort of listened for a while and listened. He said, well, you know, and he finally said, you know, I don't know that you are going to be okay. He said, like, these things really change people. And this might require some real attention and you might really need to talk to somebody. And when he said that, I just started bawling. 
it really struck me like I need to deal with this in some direct way. So that psychiatrist advice was really was really important because I think I don't know that I would have taken it as seriously as I did. So do you think you would have looked into counseling when you returned back to the States if the psychiatrist in Romania hadn't been like, look, uh, I think you've just experienced something traumatic and you need to talk to someone? It's a great question. I don't I don't know. But he said something to the effect of um, your relationship with nature might just forever be changed. Mm-hmm. And that idea was so uh, profound and terrifying to me. Because of, of course, like of course it was, and of course it is, right? But at the time, I just thought, you know, I need to just fulfill these duties around uh, getting Katie home. And we were a week in Romania, a week in Illinois. We had the funeral. Uh, maybe another week there. I moved to Indiana with Katie's brother and his his family. You know, I'd like to say that getting to see somebody three or four weeks after she died was was important because I started going two or three times a week to, to speak with the person I spoke with. I think that was an important, like, for lack of a better word, intervention. I don't know what would have happened in the intervening time that would have compelled me to go absent somebody telling me you need to go. Mm-hmm. But I really, really connected with uh, the doctor that I saw in Indianapolis. And she was a grief and trauma uh, specialist. She got it right away. She identified all the larger issues. And I, I thought, this is great. I'll, I'll talk with her. So did you, uh, did she give you a, a diagnosis at that time? With PTSD and another one that had the word trauma in it. Mm-hmm. I just know that because I had to, I had to go through quite a rigmarole to get insurance to cover these sessions. So, uh, so what, what sort of work did you, did you do with your therapist? I know in, in the book, do you detail a couple different tools that you used when you were working with her, but can you uh, tell me about some of the ones that you found most helpful during that time? Yeah, I, I found it was having a series of conversations where I think the point was to get from feeling very numb to having a range of recognizable emotions. I remember at the time there was a big emphasis on describing the events, describing what was happening in my everyday life. And at some point during the session, I would start just crying hysterically. And it would be a big physical reaction and I'm not saying this happened every time, but I kind of feel like it did, you know? Uh-huh. Another one was, was I think, learning how to talk about the night of Katie's death so that it wasn't, you know, happening every time I talked about it. Did you uh, decide to start journaling because of your sessions with her, or had you already been journaling at that point? No, that when I got back to Bucharest the night that Katie died, I just wrote everything out in as much detail as I could. So, you know, I, I remember like doing that again, you know, o- almost just, just on a daily basis. And I remember like, for example, a week later being on the plane and just writing it out in excessive detail and, and writing in caps and just getting very upset with myself that this is what I was writing about. But I had a real impulsive need to journal and transcribe everything I was feeling, everything I remembered about the night Katie died. Mm-hmm. I wanted there to be like a record, you know? So that started there. And then she, she, you know, suggested journaling about other things. And, and I started to incorporate those and the journals got pretty ranging, we could say for lack of, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word. But, uh, but you would also, mm-hmm. you'd continue to in, in therapy, retell this story um, to be able to tell yeah. it without reliving those events. So I guess it's, it's, it sounds sort of like a, a form of exposure therapy to me. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. I, I don't know that I, I think I thought of it as I felt like if I could write until a point where I had more recognizable emotions, the ones I had expected from, I don't know, culture and, you know, just the ones I thought I was supposed to be having were emotions I could more readily recognize than just numbness and dissociation, right? Uh-huh. If I could have cathartic feelings, if I could have what felt like a genuine grief. Of course, what I was going through was a genuine grief, but at the time I didn't think it felt that way. I was deeply skeptical that the reaction I was having was wrong, that I wasn't having the right reaction that it wasn't. And I know that writing helped me find a path to having a, a more, you know, felt like a more genuine range of emotions than just sort of sitting around feeling detached from the world. So I knew writing did that. 
So how long uh, were you experiencing sort of the the numbness and, you know, the, the symptoms of depression for? I don't know. You know, I do remember saying to the therapist at some point, I must be depressed. I should be an antidepressant. And she was like, you are describing the symptoms of depression, but you seem to leave sessions feeling better. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can tackle this without a medication. PTSD symptoms, you know, things like uh, intrusive thoughts, nightmares, panic attacks. That, I would say, the severity of that has greatly has greatly decreased in my life. I wouldn't say they've ever gone away, but I would say that sort of the intensity of, of them was probably the most heightened for, let's say, the first six or seven months. Mm-hmm. But then it got really hard again with the anniversary. And I, I would say every June remains a, a, a negotiation in some way or the other. You know, mm-hmm. June is really a hard time of year for me still. So, um. So, so this isn't a, a question about mental health, but it's something that, you know, you explored in your book and I just thought would be interesting to talk to you about is sure. that the strangest of, of receiving a life insurance payment after your partner dies, which is such a, such a bizarre concept, I, I feel like, to wrap your head around after, you know, in, in place of this, this person who you love, you're getting this, this payment. And, and in your case, you write that, you know, it was, it was surprisingly large for you because the amount was correlated to, you know, how horrible this, this death was. I think it's fairly humiliating yeah. to have to claim that policy. I felt saying guilt is like, it's just, it's like too small a word for it. I felt profoundly like it was my fault that Katie had died and that I hadn't done enough to save her. And, and then to go, to go cash out on that is, feels, you know, like a betrayal. It felt at the time humiliating. And then to have to go to the, what was it, the Kinko's and get the, get the, uh, what's that called with the stamp, the, um, mm-hmm. oh, notary, notary, yeah. you know, the notary to sort of yeah. record my answers and, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it's necessary, then, but it's also like turning this this emotional thing into this monetary thing. The, the insurance company originally said, hey, we're not going to pay this out because you were hiking in bear country. What, you know, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, oh it wasn't that. It was, they said it much more charitably. But that was the initial reaction I got from the insurance company. Taking the document to get notarized to make the claim, it was a moment when I think I realized after the fact how desperately sort of lonely and eager for connection I felt mm-hmm. because I felt like it was this careful dance with the notary. How much do I tell them? How much do I not? What do I ask? What do I ask them to do for me? What do I not? And I think the guilt was really centered around like they were the transactional person mm-hmm. who were going to make this thing happen. Yeah. You know, also at that time, you you discussed like shifting from using the we pronoun when you're like telling stories about your life or, or referencing old events and, and reframing it as, you know, a, a me or an I sort of thing. What was the process like psychologically, you know, making that pronoun switch? I think I felt like, it, well, it felt like a huge betrayal to stop saying Katie's name all the time. But I never knew when I said her name or when I said we, you know, I felt like I was inviting a conversation that would unfairly invite the sympathies of the person I was talking to, or it would exploit Katie's memory, or it would exploit the nature of the tragedy. Or and and then also as as, as time went on, and I, and I still find this it's such a horrific thing to learn or discover. If someone doesn't know, I, I can't help but feel responsible for how I'm making them feel. You know what I mean? So it's, I mean, a book is one thing, but just sort of an everyday conversation. At that time, I remember my therapist said, what if you take your wedding ring? This is like six or seven months. And what if Mm -hmm. you take your wedding ring off and just start wearing it around your neck on a chain? What if you just did that? And I thought, okay, I can do that. That makes sense because I still have it and it's still close to me, but it's also not a conversation starter. It's not something people notice, you know, maybe I was a little overly attuned to how other people <laughs> paid attention to me. Mm-hmm. That's a distinct possibility. Also, they may not have not have noticed all the cues I was giving them, but I did feel like, um, I did feel the beginning of what I think was the reason I wrote the memoir, which was this question. Um, am I honoring Katie's memory? Am I 
inviting sympathy by telling these stories. You know, this 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 elegy and narrative distinction that that started to take shape in my mind years later, I think started with a question about pronouns and a question about the wedding band's role in my life. How am I honoring the memory? Where am I possibly exploiting a memory? And that was a, something I felt very concerned about right away, you know, and, and as time went on more and more so. So, um, so in, you wrote a, a second memoir, Should I Wish, which is sort of a, a companion to the first one. Should I Still Wish, yeah. Uh, should I Still Wish. Um, and uh, yeah. you write about falling in, you know, falling in love again after Katie's death. And, um, you know, it's simultaneously, like, you know, wonderful and, and very freeing for you, but also you have this immense guilt still. This is something that... <laughs> You know, so many people uh, have to have to navigate once, you know, a, a spouse dies as they're still alive, you know, and if they want to move on with their life, a part of that is reconnecting with people, forming new friendships, new relationships and new partnerships. I, I'm curious, you know, how I know this is so complicated, but like how, how you navigated that guilt and um, like what advice you you might have for for folks who are listening who are currently going through similar situations? I, I think it's important to understand that there's a competing sense of obligations. It's so natural to have, to feel every choice you make either doesn't pay appropriate respects to your, your loved one who's passed, or it doesn't pay attention in the right way to the person you love now. I mean, that, that sense of competing obligations where any, every sort of choice you make in your life feels as though it's betraying, you know, one love or the other love, as corny as that might sound, I think that that is a, a very hard navigation and a very natural one. You know, I, I think I knew, I think I say this in Young Widower, but I knew early on that I would probably get married again because I really liked being married mm-hmm. and I really liked being married to Katie. And also, but, you, I mean, you, you were know, what, 30 years old or you were 29 when she when she died. Right. Yeah. I mean, pretty young at the time. At, at the time, I thought like, well, the, the good years are over. But, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like, you know, uh-huh. yeah, I was so young. Um, as time has gone on, I think I, I have a way to to honor Katie's memory and my life with her. And, and I, you know, still think about her every day. I had to fall in love with someone who was OK with Katie's place in my life. Mm-hmm. And I was really lucky to do that, who never felt, and who also never felt that there was a, a, there was a competition between the, the two people or the two, the two marriages. But, yeah. you know, I had to fall in love with someone who was, who was, who was okay with that. And, and to my great fortune, I did. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have, uh, if there's anything else that you think might be helpful to share about the process of healing, different things that were particularly helpful for you and your grief. There's a part of the year of magical thinking in, you know, by Joan Didion where she talks about the best grief guide she could find. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but the best grief guide she could find was, was, a, was a 1920s Emily Post kind of guide to, to, to comforting your neighbors after a loss. And it talks about, you know, bring them food, sit with them at night. Joan Didion makes the observation, you know, a lot of this advice went out the window in an age of antibiotics because suddenly people in, you know, shouldn't die as, as often as they used to, you know, and, and it was just this, this kind of paradigm shift that happened that like durable grief advice and comforting advice sort of went out the window. And, and I think that, I, I think we think of, oh, if someone's seeing a therapist, if they're being comforted, if someone's on a medication, they're being comforted, there's a clinical sensibility that should sweep in and treat grief like a disease. And I think that there's so much value in the kind of neighborly, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. response of just, you know, I was always touched whenever anyone called or asked about Katie. Yeah. I was fine whenever someone asked me how my grief was or how I was doing with, I was relieved that anybody, cause I of course wanted to talk about it all the time and, and didn't want to burden anybody with it. And I was very lucky to be with the family and stuff, but I do think there is like that, that sense of like kind of the basic advice is still, it's still really good. And I think we think, we think, Oh, it's been moved to the realm of the medical and the clinical but you know the the human side of it is still pretty is still pretty wonderful. Yeah, I guess the I guess the other thing I don't know if it's interesting to you, but I, I I'm still in such good touch with my nieces in Indiana, and one of them you know has come out 
every spring for the last few years and spent a long weekend with us on her college semester. And but she was out, and my my son, my seven year old, is very precocious and maybe a little curious. Was like, how are you guys related? And he actually got very upset. I was like, no, I know who your I know who your brother and sister are. So how can she be your niece? And I was finally like, I just sort of just told him when you know when we were in the car together and. That was always something that seemed like it was going to be a moment of such profound taboo. Mm-hmm. And it was weirdly, like, straightforward. Well, you know, I was married to this woman named Katie. And, you know, he kind of knew the broad strokes of how I feel about bears. And and so con- sort of connecting it, he was just sort of like, oh, oh, that makes sense. And when, like, when it happened, it was so natural and nice. And I felt so grateful for that. So Catherine, like, John wasn't diagnosed with, you know, prolonged grief disorder. So I, I don't, I want to make it clear that yeah. he, he didn't tell me necessarily that this was like right, a, right. A, a diagnosis he received, but I thought it would be um, uh, a good illustration of like how certain people grieve when they experience something like this. Folks who witness a loved one die in a violent way and who are, you know, have PTSD, some of the symptoms overlap. Um you know, first I thought it was really interesting that he found the early intervention from the psychiatrist to be helpful. Mm. You know, Professor Bonanno, like, was talking about how it can also often be, like, damaging when somebody shows up right after a traumatic event and, again, is like, oh, I'm a mental health professional. Here are the stages of trauma. Um, You have experienced something that is potentially traumatic. But it sounds like he was really grateful for the early intervention. Yeah, I mean, that's where kind of the clinical intuition comes in you Uh, know to know what's what's going to be helpful for a particular person so yeah I thought I mean I thought that was really interesting because I just on the interview with Professor Bonanno uh when I talked to John like I talked to Professor Bonanno like uh, during the day and I interviewed John at night Mm. and so that was something that really stood out to me it was like oh if he hadn't immediately sat down with like a guy in Romania who had been like actually I think maybe you're not okay like if (laughs) If he would have had an easier time, but I guess there's no, there's no way to tell. Yeah. yeah. So also like, you know, he, he talked about some of the treatments that were really helpful for him that uh, Professor Bonanno also discussed. So there was like the telling the story over and over again Mm -hmm. uh, in therapy, which he, it was fascinating that he like intuitively started doing that immediately, like after, after the event. But he was telling me that like, I, I think part of it was the extreme guilt that he felt Mm -hmm. that he felt partially responsible for her death, that he wasn't able to save her from, from the bear. Professor Bonanno was talking about how like that is quite often a a symptom of this sort of grief is you'll start personalizing and thinking that you are responsible for that person's death. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I, I experienced that sort of on a minute level. Like I didn't become obsessed with it, but like after my mom died, you know, I also had a lot of guilt. I kept thinking, like, if I hadn't, like, pushed for this one clinical trial, like, maybe she would have tried a different clinical trial and she would still be mm-hmm. alive. Or, like, oh, if, you know, if I'd made her go to the doctor earlier when she was was jaundiced initially, like, if I had forced her to go to, she just went to go see her regular primary care doctor initially and they, like, misdiagnosed her as having hepatitis C. Like, right. I wonder if I had... If I had been like, you have to go see a specialist, if they would have caught it earlier, if they could have done something, you know, it's, I talked through a lot of that guilt with my therapist. And, um, I mean, it seems like John was experiencing that on like a much more massive scale. Like he felt like directly responsible when, yeah. It's almost kind of like a way of like understanding what's happened. Like, I don't know if it's kind of easier to wrap our minds around something horrible if we can place blame oh, yeah. for it. Um, and when it even just if, feels random. Yeah. yeah, even if that blame is on ourselves. Or to try and like solve the problem, to go mm. back in time and like figure out how to solve the problem yeah. um, so that there's like a universe in which it doesn't happen and that right. person is still alive. Um but yeah, so I thought it was I thought it was interesting that he initially just started doing that where he like that, you know, immediately started writing down the story. But mm. then he worked with um, his therapist to, to sort of do it in different ways. And then ultimately what came out of it was this book. Yeah. Um, 
which I think I really highly recommend that folks read if if that that's something that you're interested in. It's really beautifully written. I also really like the the comment that we tend to treat grief as a, a type of disease now. Um, it's interesting to think that uh, maybe people a hundred years ago were so much better prepared to deal with death um, just because they experienced it so much more often. John said that he really loved just when people in the coming weeks and months would ask about Katie yeah. so that he had an opportunity to talk with her about it without feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as, as he was saying, like he, he didn't want to make other people uncomfortable or sad. Right. He didn't want to like push his grief onto them. And so he just like wouldn't bring her up um, or pretend like pretend like it, it didn't happen just to like save other people from experiencing discomfort or sadness. And so it was really nice for him when they like opened that door so that he he was like, oh, okay, this person is okay with me talking about her or yeah. talking about like my, my life with her or like talking about how I'm doing now. Right. And I think it is, you know, for a lot of people important to celebrate the life of the person they've lost and talking about them as a way to do that. So before I wrap up, I just wanted to bring in one final voice. So I met Carmel in journalism school in 2010. She's 30 years old now. Her father died of stomach cancer when she was in her late 20s. She found out that he was sick with cancer on a Sunday, and he died the following Friday. It was really upsetting for her. She went back to work very quickly after that. She was having you know, intense feelings of, of sadness, but she was still able to function. And in this reflection that I'm going to play, she, she shares some really strong insight and advice for grieving individuals and also for folks who want to support people who are grieving. My name is Carmel Dalshad. I'm a journalist in Washington, D.C., and I lost my dad about two and a half years ago to cancer. One of the more upsetting things that I went through was just feeling really isolated. I felt like a lot of people, particularly my younger friends, you know, my age group, didn't know how to deal with death at all. I got like a a lot of text messages and calls that day, but maybe the day after, but like a week or two later when it really hits you after you're done with just the exhausting portions of it, I felt so alone. One of my best friends like flew into town to come stay with me within a month and a half of that happening, which I really appreciated. But from other friends, I just felt really isolated and really wished I had somebody to call me and say, hey, I've been thinking about you. Are you okay? Or come over and just sit with me or talk. I think the most interesting thing that I've noticed about the grief process is that it's just that. It's a process. It evolves. You know, initially, I couldn't even talk about my dad without, like, just uncontrollably sobbing. I really wasn't raised in a very emotional family, so we never really talked about our feelings or anything like that. It was a pretty traditional Arab household. So I sort of felt like I had to suppress that in a lot of ways. I either put on a brave face And I remember sometimes I would, like, cry myself to sleep. I didn't want to, like, bother my husband a lot. He was going through his own stuff in this process, too. And I didn't want to feel like a burden. But now I I feel like the best way for me to remember him is to keep talking about him and to talk about the stories that he told me and his identity. And that's sort of the best way to keep his memory alive. You know, my future children will will never know their grandfather from their mom's side, but I want them to know him from my stories and from the poetry that he wrote and the writing that he left behind. And in that way, I still feel really connected to him. I can't say where I think he is right now. I mean, hopefully in heaven, like we say, in paradise, Jannah, I would pray sometimes at night that I would see him in my dream to know if he's okay. My father was like really into the mystical aspects of Islam and was really into dreams and things like that. I just remember closing my eyes every night, hoping I'd see him just to know that he's doing okay. And um, a couple of weeks after he died, I had a dream 
where I was back in my house that I grew up in with my parents. And he was in the backyard working on a car. And the entire car was covered in really lush green grass and flowers. And he was watering it. He turned around and looked so happy and smiled at me. And he asked if I wanted to help him water it. I said, yeah, of course. I don't remember much else from that dream, but just thinking symbolically of what, you know, lush green grass and flowers symbolizes, to me, I took that as he's doing okay. In many ways, his death changed a lot in me. I think I'm a more sympathetic and empathetic person because of it. I now really try to go out of my way to be there for friends and family who've lost somebody, just knowing what I felt like and what I went through. I also feel more connected to my mom as a result because, you know, when you lose one parent, it sort of makes you think about the other parent as your sort of only tie to being home. And I can say that if anything good has come out of it, I feel even more close to her. And it's made me really look forward to having my own family one day and thinking about what wisdom I want to impart on them or what stories I want them to grow up with and what memories I want them to take with them as they embark on their lives. I think that's the best thing that you can take out of this whole process. And I I would say that if anything good can come out of a death, it's just the knowledge and the realization of what you have left and how you can keep cherishing that. One thing that my husband would tell me in the aftermath of my father's passing is the best you can do for your dad and his memory and for his soul at this point is to do good deeds in his name. And that's something I try to do and a way of life that I try to live now for my dad. For any listeners who are going through the grieving process. First of all, my heart is with you guys. I know it's not easy at all. My other advice would be to talk to somebody about it, to find a friend or confidant or spouse or significant other to talk about what you're going through. Verbalize some of what emotions that you're going through. I think not doing that does more harm than good. The other thing that I would recommend is talking to people who knew the loved one that you've lost. I found a lot of comfort in people sharing funny stories with me or even not so funny stories. I really enjoyed just knowing more about him. I felt like I was so hungry for any kind of information that can connect me with his memory. And if somebody can tell me something that, you know, he said to them the last time they saw that made them laugh, it really, really sticks with you. I remember one of the nurses at the hospice care center said that, oh my gosh, your dad is a hoot. I love talking to him. My dad really loved opera. And she said we were talking about Carmen and Madame Butterfly and all these other major works of art. And I remember the next day I was off and I sat at home and all I did while I was working on household chores was listen to Madame Butterfly. And your dad really encouraged me to do that. And I found that so touching that made me feel so nice after he died that knowing that he had that effect on somebody. You know, after a loved one dies, I think a lot of people will have really great intentions and want to be supportive, but then it seems like scary and they don't really know how to be supportive mm. or um, if they're being intrusive or yeah. if they should check in in you know, the next few weeks or month or whatever. But yeah, I think it, it, never, it never hurts to check in and let people know that you're thinking of them. I think that there's no way that's gonna be a bad thing. Yeah, definitely. Someone talked to me recently about putting in her calendar and alerts on her phone you know, regular kind of weekly check-ins with a friend who she knew was going through a hard time just to have that reminder. I mean, you know, someone who's grieving is 
thinking about that loss constantly most of their day. Right. And friends and maybe family who aren't experiencing that loss just aren't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so that can feel like a disconnect. But yeah, I thought that was just a great way to to make sure that you're really being intentional about following up with that person because it is a long process. I also agree with her that it's been, you know, I love hearing stories of people who knew my mom, Mm -hmm. um, like stories about her life that I've, you know, even ones that I've heard before, but particularly ones that I haven't heard before, because it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm getting to know a part of her that I didn't know when she was alive. It's like, I think when I was, you know, deepest in my grief, my favorite thing was talking to my aunts, her, her sisters and hearing about her childhood. Yeah. Um, cause it felt like, you know, she's gone. I'm not going to be creating any more memories with her. I'm not going to be right. learning more things about, about her. Our relationship isn't, isn't moving forward, but it felt in those ways, like it was continuing to move forward. Yeah. Still getting to know her. Yeah. Uh, I, I have one more piece of advice from George Bonanno that if you really want to help a grieving person, you should get them laughing. Well, when we first began to do this research in the 90s, we noticed that people were, were laughing a lot and smiling in the interviews, even though they were crying in the same interviews too. But we have ways of coding that. We, we code it from facial expressions. There's a, a certain muscle movement around the eyes that we can code that, that gets that genuine positive emotion we found that the majority of people in our studies were showing these genuine laughs and smiles, even in the same interview when they were crying and really upset because we go in and out of these states. And it turned out that was one of the biggest predictors of who would be doing well. And when we began to publish this work, we realized there's nothing in the literature about this. And if we could ever find laughter and smiling during bereavement, it was always mentioned as a form of denial. And we thought that was really striking because basically... Laughter and smiling is a, is a great bonding uh, experience. When we laugh and smile, we, there's lots of research showing this is a contagion. It, it, it causes us to be close to other people, other people close to us. And there's no reason why we should completely abdicate any experiences like that. It doesn't mean we don't love the person. It doesn't mean we're in denial. It just means at that moment we're not suffering. And it's very helpful. So I've even gone as far as to try to see a funny movie or something. It may not be possible if someone's really suffering. But, you know, going out with friends or any of these things like that, we can give ourselves a little respite. And that's perfectly okay. And I think there was a kind of a cultural prohibition against just giving yourself a break. But I think that's perfectly a good thing to do. So in honor of George's suggestion that we laugh, I wanted to end the way we uh, started our grief stories with a lovely clip from the Douglas family. So here's Josh Douglas. I'd, I'd, I'd describe it as a, try to foodinize uh, our relationship as a complicated one. After, yeah, our mom passed away, um, that was my comfort. I just ate a lot and it was in October. So it was kind of around the holidays. And so it was definitely easy to eat a lot. And I went to my physical, my checkup, maybe in December. I think I must have gained like 25 pounds, maybe even more than that, 25, 30 pounds. But yeah, my doctor, he's a young, young guy. And he was like, he he was checking out my measurements. He's like, Douglas, damn Douglas. What have you been working out? I got to know your routines. Let me know. You've been drinking protein powder. What's going on? And I'm like, grief eating, man. <laughs> like, just being sad and eating. Um, so that's our show for today. Thanks to John W. Evans and Carmel for sharing their stories. Um, I'll link to John's work on our website, grouppodcast.com, in case you want to check it out. I'll also link to a piece that Carmel wrote about her father. So you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you download your podcasts uh, to make sure that you have the, the next episode when it comes out. I promise it'll be lighter. If you have a question or a idea for a future show, you can call the group voicemail 707-510-0270. You can email me at rebecca at grouppodcast.com. 
Oh, and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps so much and we would, we really appreciate it. We've had, we've had some lovely reviews recently. Thank you so much to you guys who left them. If you haven't, please go and leave one. It's, it's so helpful. If you're interested in Catherine's work as a therapist, you can visit her website, katherinedrury.com, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-D-R-U-R-Y.com. Thanks again to Mary Langto, Faith Rusk, Salman Khan, and also to James Drury for their continued help and support with group. Music in this episode is by The Losers. Take care and be kind to yourself. Everything is going to be okay. Would you like something for sleep? What? I have Valium if you need it. No, I don't need any Valium. Halcyon? Second all? I want some peace and quiet. No, I'll be quiet. I'll be peace.